Donald Trump called him tough. Rush Limbaugh read one of his articles live on his radio show. Ann Coulter tweeted that article to her one and a half million followers and declared, every sentence is perfect. Ladies and gentlemen, your host, former chief editor of the Jewish Press, Elliot Resnick. Welcome to the Elliot Resnick Show, where we interview fighters and firebrands on the political and cultural battlefields. It's always a pleasure listening to a smart, fearless, and clear-eyed thinker. David Azerod, an assistant professor at Hillsdale College, is one such individual. Recently interviewed for an hour by conservative star Tucker Carlson, Professor Azerod is a Sephardi Jew raised in Montreal, Canada, by parents born in Morocco and France, respectively. He is the former director of the Center for Principles and Politics at the Heritage Foundation, and his writings have appeared in such publications as the Claremont Review of Books, First Things, and Newsweek. Professor Azerod, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me, Elliot. My pleasure, my honor. You are an expert on the political philosophy that led to the founding of this country. So let's begin with this topic. What exactly was this philosophy? Before you answer, though, I'd like to make this question more obviously relevant to my listeners by mentioning two relatively recent developments. The first is the imposition of COVID restrictions. The government ordered us to close our businesses, to close our schools, to close our houses of worship. And many people said, hey, this is just un-American. The second development is the attempt of New York State to force Hasidic schools to teach non-religious subjects. Many Jews argue that the government is acting un-American, that it's none of the government's business how people educate their own children. Are they right? Is it un-American for the government to enact draconian COVID restrictions? Is it un-American for the government to tell parents what to teach their children? What exactly is the proper role of government according to the founding fathers of this country? Whether something is un-American all depends on what you mean by America. So the current understanding of America is, you know, wokeness, climate change, and trust the science, except if the science is looking into the biological basis for sexual or racial differences, in which case you don't talk about the science, you call it racist and sexist. So I take it you're asking an American in terms of the original understanding of America, broadly speaking, the founding. Now, look, there are, you know, you called me an expert on this. I don't know if I'm an expert. Not one human life would be enough to read all the books that have been written on the topic, and academics are deeply divided over how to interpret the founding. I broadly think that the founding was undeniably heavily influenced by the philosophy of John Locke, the 17th century British thinker, who stood for religious liberty, natural rights, government by consent the separation of church and state, although not the way we understand it today, uh, and the right to revolution, of course. And only an academic could deny Locke's footprint on the founding. There are two passages in the Declaration of Independence that are verbatim lifted from Locke. And then if you look at the Declaration of Independence, if you look at founding era state constitutions, if you look at You know, the major pronouncements when prominent founders, the Washingtons, the Jeffersons, Hamiltons, Madisons, attempted to articulate the big picture and the underlying principles, there's an obvious Lockean footprint. Now, the reason this ends up being such a controversial point of view is a lot of people think that Locke was a complete radical, that Locke was basically a proto-libertarian whose message boils down to radical individualism, i.e. all rights, no duties, 
all individual, no community. So a lot of scholars want to read Locke out of the founding because they want to save the founding from the Lockean contagion. And I would not call myself a Lockean. I wrote my dissertation on him. I think he's a serious thinker worth investigating. But I don't think he's a proto, you know, Murray Rothbart or Robert Nozick, like the big libertarian theorist of the 20th century. I think he has a rather reasonable and rather moderate political teaching. And then to answer your question, the founding clearly is not radically individualistic in the sense of the government has no business telling citizens what to do in any case. That's not true. I mean, the founders clearly cared about the common good, and the common good would include guarding against illnesses. And second, it would include the civic education, ensuring that the next generation of citizens knows what it means to be an American. Now, that being said, the founders also had a strong prejudice in favor of individual liberty and perhaps an even stronger prejudice in favor of parents know what is best for their children. So the devil is all going to be in the details. If COVID were a real plague, like bubonic plague level, then I think you can make an argument that the government has the right to restrict the freedom of citizens to prevent everyone from dying. And if it were the case that some citizens are you know, not even teaching their children how to read and write and how to count, I think you could make an argument that the state could interfere with parental rights. But not knowing the particulars of the Hasidic case you're mentioning, but knowing something of what COVID panned out to be, which is, you know, the flu, except a little bit worse, it would seem to me that in these cases, it would be un-American, the hysterical lockdowns. And then I'd need to know more about the Hasidic case, but I think it's pretty obvious that there's a widely accepted prejudice against religious people amongst elite Americans today, that if uh, Christians and Jews are too religious, then that's a bad thing. And they're probably fanatics. And we should interfere with the way they want to raise their kids because my God, you know, they may teach them that homosexuality is a sin and that's the worst possible thing. So it's interesting. You mentioned that because I was going to mention that as an example in terms of what the government's role is. Should there be legislation about homosexuality on a state level, on a federal level, is it proper on either level, on one of them? What do the founders think about those type of things? This is where Locke is useful. The language we hear today, which comes from the libertarians, is that the government should not legislate morality. And I think this language appeals to a lot of non-woke kids. Like, it's a free country. You know, what's it to you if I smoke weed in my dorm room or if I, you know, I have a homosexual encounter with a man? I'm not harming anyone. Um for the, the way that Locke or the founders would think about it, the government is not in the business of saving your soul or making you into a virtuous person. This is not the ancient city-state. It's not a theocracy. However, the government has a vested interest in maintaining the moral conditions that allow for a civilized country to continue existing. You know, the, I think the most beautiful line in the founding is in the preamble of the constitution. It's the sixth reason why we, the people in America, ordain this constitution. And it is to secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and to our posterity. And I love that for two reasons. One is it shows you that there's a difference between liberty and the blessings of liberty, i.e. not all uses of liberty will produce blessings. 
for example, watching porn and smoking crack. Yeah, that's a free thing to do, but it's not producing blessings. And second, you can't just be concerned with me, me, me. You need to take into consideration posterity. So that means the political community is going to have a vested interest in ensuring that there is a posterity, which is very much a problem across the developed world as fertility rates are cratering. Your listeners may know this, but Israel is the only developed nation in the world with a fertility rate above replacement. But then second, you want to raise the next generation in such a way that they too are capable of enjoying these blessings and transmitting them in turn to the next generation. So on the specific question of homosexuality, at the time of the founding, I don't have the precise number, but most states, I believe, criminalized sodomy. Not much justification was offered for that. If I had to guess and say, well, why are you doing that? They would say that it undermines the family, that you don't want sexuality to be disordered. You would want it to be channeled into the family. It would be the same reason that you would criminalize prostitution. It's not because it's a sin according to the Bible, because there are many sins in the Bible that the government is not going to punish if they're not having political reverberations. Now, obviously today, that ship has sailed. It would be foolish and imprudent in America to be crusading on laws criminalizing homosexuality. The country is not there. The Supreme Court has ruled that it's incompatible with the 14th Amendment. There's all sorts of issues of enforcement. But I think it's just important, broadly speaking, to recover the idea that the founders were not libertarians, that they did not think that consenting adults can do whatever they want. Now, that doesn't mean that they were theocrats or statists or Stalinists who wanted to micromanage your life. You know, public discourse is so impoverished today in America. It's one of these two stupid camps. It's either I get to do whatever I want, including frying my mind on hard drugs, or, you know, what is this, Soviet Russia? Well, no, there's plenty of space in between where you generally provide ample room for citizens to freely leave their lives as they see fit. But you recognize that some behaviors don't immediately harm a third party at first, but if scaled and allowed to spread across the population, are going to do terrible harm to the political community. I think drugs is the much better example, you know, really hard drugs. Now, then you can get into a prudential question of, you know, well, how do you wage the war on drugs and what's the right way to do it? But as a matter of principle, I don't think it should be a controversial position that a widespread use of hard drugs is incompatible with a flourishing political community and that you wanting to ban that doesn't make you a theocrat or a fascist. I have a theory which I want to run by you. Right now, because the left is in the ascendancy, they now have laws, as is well known, let's say the Colorado Baker case. They went into a bakery, said, please bake us a cake for our homosexual wedding. So my theory is perhaps that I was just reading de Tocqueville actually recently, and he talks about a almost uniformity of thought in terms of morality at the time. So maybe it's okay to legislate morality when you have 90, 95% of people agreeing on the basic values of society. When you have a society like ours, which is basically 50-50, and perhaps it's not right then to use your 51% majority to legislate, oh, homosexuality now must be legal and you must bake this cake for me, and then it gets to be tyrannical. Would you agree with that? I would accept, I should tell you, I don't like the line legislate morality. Okay, sorry. Because, no, no, you don't need to apologize, meaning, I just mean, 
What are you going to legislate if not morality? Are you going to legislate aesthetics? Are you going to prevent men from wearing jean shorts? Are you going to legislate music, you know, and say you only are allowed to listen to Bach? No, that's nonsense. Of course you legislate morality. The only question is which morality, whose morality? So take the people who are most adamant that we shouldn't legislate morality, libertarians. Well, they don't want to legalize murder. They don't want to legalize rape. And they don't want to legalize theft. I mean, these are moral issues. But they're like, well, no, this is different. It's like, well, because you have a very minimalist libertarian morality. So we're always going to legislate morality. The only question is, what kind of a morality? Is it a libertarian morality of consenting adults can do whatever they want? Is it a woke leftist morality of you need to redistribute wealth, honor, and jobs in order to selectively eliminate disparities between blacks and whites, men and women, gays and straight, trans and cis? Or would it be, you know, what I'd call a conservative morality that is trying to balance two things? On the one hand, a due regard for individual liberty, i.e., you do want to give wide space to individuals. This is a free country. But on the other hand, you want to be mindful of the fact that we do need to keep the country together and going. And that that means that there are reasonable limits that can be placed on the actions of individuals, even if the action is not immediately harming anyone. Now, regarding the example you gave of the cake, you know, one way out of this would be freedom of association, i.e. that you let people serve whom they want. And if it turns out that, you know, Jack Phillips won't even, I think it's important to remind your listeners, he serves gay customers. What he doesn't want to do is bake a cake for a gay wedding. You could say, well, one way out of this is in a diverse country with a lot of disagreements is let's have full freedom of association. Someone will say, I don't serve Jews. Well, then the solution is, you know, go to the other store. Unless you have a monopoly, like you're the only electricity provider in Manhattan, you can't say I won't serve Jews. But say there's a dry cleaner in Manhattan who says, I don't want to serve Jews anymore. Do you think the other 5,000 dry cleaners won't serve Jews? And also, you don't think this dry cleaner will be crucified in the media and the court of public opinion? Meaning the market and social pressures not to discriminate are so big today that you no longer need laws. Now, that wasn't the case when we passed the 64 Civil Rights Act, because we had a whole institutionalized system of discrimination against Black Americans. But today, I think that that's no longer the issue. I think we should err in the direction of freedom of association, of telling people, you know, let them run their businesses the way they want. And if there's some light discrimination, go somewhere else. Now, we can't do that because there's the 64 Civil Rights Act and there's a whole civil rights regime that has been built up that is looking in how everyone runs their business, their Boy Scouts, their universities, trying to sniff out covert discrimination. But to kind of answer your question, yeah, we're a big country. We're divided on a bunch of issues. Maybe one way forward would just be to agree to disagree on a bunch of things. But ultimately, you need to agree on some things. You know, if this is going to be a coherent political community in a country, there is a limit to live and let live. So live and let live is good when you're divided, but you can take it so far that you ask, well, in what meaningful way are we still Americans? There has to be some shared understanding And therefore, ultimately, there's no substitute for having to fight some of these culture war fights 
to, for example, to defend the idea that there are men and women and that they're different. I just think that on some of these issues, it probably makes more sense to only make it a legal issue on a local level as opposed to a federal level, because then you're dealing with more reflective of community values and only really to embed things in laws when you have really super majorities or something close to that as opposed to just 51%. I just think there's less division if you require a super majority and if you require these laws to be local. That would be my... Well, I mean, if you think of what the original design for America was, to go back to the founding, it was a federated republic. You remember, up until the Civil War, we spoke of America in the plural. It was these United States of America are. The idea behind the Constitution was we have these 13 states and we're going to have more of them. They're different. They should have maximum self-government, except on some issues where we really need to speak in one voice. For example, foreign policy. Like You can't have Alabama declare war against Mexico and Vermont sign a peace treaty with it. So if you look at Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution, there are 17 specific enumerated powers that are granted to Congress. And these are really issues where we should speak in one voice. Um, gradually, as our history has unfolded and with the passage of the 14th Amendment and the way that it was interpreted by the courts, we now have a highly centralized republic where laws are made in D.C. to micromanage many aspects of things that take place in the localities and the states. And then also a lot of money is sucked out of the states and then pumped back in with federal strings. So the combination of laws and regulations, and let's be honest, basically financial bribes, means that there is uh, much less room to, well, customize local government to suit the needs of the people. One way out, but I don't see how you do it, would be let Vermont be Vermont, let Texas be Texas, and let people vote with their feet. But that's not the America we live in. Although, you know, COVID was a good example of uh, there was more dissent in Florida under DeSantis than there was in California under Newsom. So even though federalism is eroded, it's still not dead. You know, you see it in gun ownership laws that some states allow concealed carry, others don't. You know, homeschooling is now legal in all 50 states, but at first it wasn't. School choice. So there is still some difference between red states and blue states. But we have considerably departed from the original design of a federated, decentralized republic. In your interview with Tucker a few months ago, you praised the younger generation of Republicans for being more irreverent than the older generation, and you called for playing political hardball. What did you have in mind? Well, I was kind of picking on, well, the older generation, I really mean the boomers. So I'm an Xer and I'm more looking at the millennials and the generation Z. And I should say most of them are not on the right and are quite awful and feminized and on antidepressants, uh, low testosterone, can't do a push-up, hysterical, weak-minded. But I meant more on the right. What I see on the right amongst the millennials and the Zs is that they're not as beholden to the Reagan fetish. All the pieties that you find in the minds of boomers, which partially I understand. I mean, you know, in the 80s, I was Canadian and less than 10 years old, so not paying much attention. I imagine from what I've read, it must have been a pretty amazing thing to feel that you went from Malays under Carter 
with stagflation to Reagan and the economy's booming and he's finally taking a hard line against the Soviet Union. I quite admire Reagan, but what I mean is amongst many in the older generation on the right, there's a bit of this Reagan fetish, this romanticizing the good old days of National Review and Bill Buckley, and just not realizing, A, how utterly nasty the left is today, and B, let's be honest, how the right has not succeeded. There was no Reagan revolution in the way that there was a sexual revolution. There was a civil rights revolution. There was a green revolution. Reagan did not fundamentally alter the trajectory of American politics. I mean, yeah, there was a great period of economic growth. He ramped up defense spending and hastened the end of the Soviet Union. But look at where America is today. Look at the state of the country if you're on the right. And so I just meant that on the younger generations are less beholden to the worship of Reagan, Buckley, Russell Kirk, all of these older icons in the conservative movement that, you know, some have qualities more than others. But I think on the whole, we're just not successful. They did not succeed in stopping the left. And therefore, the younger generation are more irreverent about that. And like, you know, I don't need to read more Russell Kirk to figure out what to do about wokeness. Russell Kirk is not a guide to dealing with transgenderism. And also they're more, yeah, they want to play more hardball because they see that a lot of the pleasant, timid, civil disposition of some of the older generation just constantly leads to losses. And, you know, the bluntest way I would put it is I would like to rebuild an America where gentlemen can once again rule. It just pains me to say that the America we live in today is going to require men with ungentlemanly dispositions to get into some of the nasty fights we need to get into. And that doesn't come naturally to some people, and I don't fault them for that. You know, like to fight the trans issue or pornography, I mean, you need to talk about ugly things. And maybe you don't want to talk about this in the public square, and I don't fault you for that. But this is where I like the younger ones who are more spirited, more defiant, more angry, and I think who see more clearly that what the right has been doing has not been working. To me, that is the starting point of any attempt to fix the right is to be willing to admit that the mainstream conservative movement has failed. And this is a very hard admission to make for people in their 60s who've spent 30 years, 40 years in the mainstream conservative movement. But the younger generation is not as beholden to it because they didn't know Reagan, they didn't know Kirk, they didn't know Buckley. They haven't worked for 30 years at some of these think tanks or publications. And so they're freer in that sense. And that's what I like about them. Could you give one example of what it would mean to play political hardball? I I mean, where do we even begin? I mean, to me, the basic thing would mean the MO of the conservative movement and Republicans has been, we need to get rid of government because it's too big, it spends too much, and it's unconstitutional. I'm like, okay, I like the project. Now, have you succeeded ever in abolishing a single agency or department? Has anyone succeeded in meaningfully cutting government? Remember, Reagan didn't cut government. Reagan slowed down the rate of growth of government. He cut taxes, and the promise of tax cuts was twofold. One was economic growth, which did result, but the other was starve the beast. 
Well, it turns out that the beast can borrow and print money and has not starved, but put on a few extra trillions of pounds or dollars of weight since Reagan was president. You know, you look our debt to GDP ratio, we're basically Italy at this point. So what it would mean for me is to say, yeah, in theory, I'd love to get rid of the Department of Education. But seeing that we have never succeeded in doing that, why instead do we not learn how to govern and take the reins of some of these institutions and cut off the spigot of money to leftist institutions like the universities that are completely corrupt? Why not, you know, look at what DeSantis is trying to do with the new college in Florida. Take over one of their institutions, fire people, put in our people and change it. You know, it it would mean trying to take things away from them rather than always trying to Benedict option out of America. The right is always live and let live. I just want to homeschool. I want AM talk radio. So fine, you've dominated the schools and all the mainstream media. I just want to opt out. But the thing is, the other side won't let you opt out. So I would say it means taking power and using it to direct money away from compromised leftist institutions towards patriotic American ones. And it would be to dishonor and shame corrupt leftist institutions and to redirect honor towards good and patriotic institutions. That's what it means. It means not being afraid to govern and not being ashamed to kind of amp up the rhetoric. You know, we're always too polite on some of these issues, and we should be able to call a spade a spade. You know, like you look at the trans issue right now, or look at something even worse, you know, the next frontier in the sexual revolution is the legitimization of pedophilia. It's already starting with, they now call it minor attracted persons. So the first thing you always do is you destigmatize by changing the lingo. Well, I'm not convinced that research papers put out by think tanks making complex abstract arguments about why this is wrong is the way to go as opposed to just the blunt, if you try to touch my kids, I'm going to kill you type of thing. Like a spirited, this is utterly disgusting. It's an abomination. There is no justification for it. Like channeling some righteous anger. It doesn't mean that you should be hysterical like Alex Jones, although he's been right about certain things, it turns out. I choose my words carefully, certain. That there's a time and place for a high tone, but there's a time and place also to be indignant and angry. That's what I mean. Switching topics a little bit, you teach at Hillsdale College, which is a Christian university as far as I know. How do your Christian students and or colleagues react to your Jewishness, if at all? Well, so Hillsdale is indeed a Christian university, but we don't have to sign a statement of faith as faculty the way that they do at Patrick Henry College or Liberty College. So Everyone knows I'm, I'm Jewish, and that's why well, everyone knows. I mean, I don't talk about it incessantly in class. Occasionally, I crack jokes. Um, I mean, it's a combination of no one cares or they love the Jews. My quip about American Jews is never in the history of mankind has there been a demographic segment that has loved Jews more than evangelicals do. And American Jews are too dumb to accept it and to see it and remain hostile to them. I mean, my general impression having been, you know, not in the Jewish neocon side of the conservative movement, i.e. commentary in Manhattan, 
but more on the red state grassroots side of the conservative movement, i.e. via heritage, for example. I've traveled all across the country. Uh, the base on the right is overwhelmingly Christian. Um, they love Jews. They love Israel. They love Jews. I've never once had an issue. I mean, I think you should know there's, there's much more anti-Semitism coming from the left today than there is from the right. So it is so not an issue. I don't even have a single anecdote to tell you about being a Jewish professor at an institution like Hillsdale. I love my colleagues. I love my students. I take it. I'm well-liked. It is a complete non-issue. Are they surprised that you're not liberal, though? Because unfortunately, sometimes people think of Jews as being liberal. Some of them ask. And then I explain to them, you know, one is that's, I think, much more of an American phenomenon than it is of, say, in Canada, where I'm from, at least in Montreal, where I grew up, the Jewish community is not super left wing. And then to me, it really is more of a sociological phenomenon. If you looked at political affiliation of Reformed Jews and Orthodox Jews, which is what I am, I think you would see a striking difference that, you know, what ends up happening in America is if you want to belong in the elites, it means you need to go to quote unquote, a good school where you need to learn to talk a certain way. And then you need to live in a particular zip code where you need to have certain opinions. You can keep kosher. No one cares about that. You can even observe the Sabbath. But when it comes to BLM and gay pride, these are the issues where if you want to fit in with the elites, well, you need to remove the elements of your religion that are problematic and go in the right direction. And that's why you see even some Orthodox synagogues moving left on some of these woke issues. But the way I explain it is because look at the zip codes where these synagogues are located or these Orthodox schools are located. It's in the super zips. You know, it's parents who want to fit in, have high income jobs and respectable parts of society. And there is a creed. You know, BLM is sacred. The gay flag is sacred. Kosher is fine. Like, no one cares. Like, yeah, fine. Don't eat shrimp. You can keep on doing that. And so, you know, we're social animals. People want to fit in. No one likes to be called a racist. And people drift to the left because at the top, all of the rewards go to veering to the left. And there is a heavy price to pay for going to the right, both in terms of stigma and ultimately, you know, to the point of cancellation. I was wondering, just a question occurred to me just actually an hour before the interview. Considering how woke the universities are, most universities, would you recommend Orthodox Jews sending their kids to Hillsdale? Undoubtedly so, with one caveat that at this point right now, Hillsdale doesn't have a kosher cafeteria. And Hillsdale itself is a very small little town in Michigan. I think probably the closest place. I don't know what's the closest place you could find kosher food. So I teach in the D.C. campus. But I know that the president, Larry Arn, is always telling me that, you know, Jewish parents come up to him and say, Larry, you know, I want to send my kids to Hillsdale. Because I should say, Hillsdale is one of the very, very few morally and intellectually serious universities in America. Now, people say it's conservative, but I mean, I guess it ends up being conservative, but it, it doesn't understand itself as a conservative university. I just think it's a real university that is dedicated to learning. And that therefore makes it conservative. But it's just an intellectually and morally serious place. It's a wonderful, wonderful college. So I, I know that there's increasing demand as the universities grow more and more crazy. 
parents are looking for alternatives. And Hillsdale is also a highly selective and rigorous college. The acceptance rate, I think, is down to 17%. It has a big endowment. It's a rich college. So I think it's pretty much alone in terms of being, you know, a dissident breaking with the woke consensus, but also being highly selective and wealthy. So I know that there's demand. I know that the president, Larry Arn, is aware of that. And now I don't know what they're going to do. Are they going to hire a rabbi? Are they going to offer kosher options at the cafeteria? But I would not be surprised if it happens in the coming years. But I'd send my kids to Hillsdale. I don't have kids yet, but I would send them to Hillsdale without hesitation over pretty much any other university in America, because I would be confident that Hillsdale would not teach them to hate me and America and their faith. Whereas I would not have that confidence sending my kids to pretty much any other university in America. Are there any barriers for an Orthodox Jewish meeting? Is there like a requirement to go to church every Sunday or is there no. a mandatory like course on Christian theology? There's no mandatory. That's why I said it's, you know, the term Christian college encompasses a lot of different kinds of. So I have a good friend of mine. He teaches at Patrick Henry College. So there all the faculty have to sign a statement of faith affirming the Christian creed. I don't know if any colleges have mandatory chapel. I, I don't know that well enough, but no, Hillsdale, I mean, there are atheists at Hillsdale. It's Christian in the sense of, I would say, not hostile and anti-Christian is kind of the way I see it. Now, look, because I don't teach on the main campus, I don't know student life there very, very well. So there is a big chapel on campus, but I've never heard of a story of anyone being forced to attend. I've had a Jewish student, actually an Israeli guy, who ended up in the U.S. and ended up at Hillsdale. So, no, I, I can't imagine it would be a problem. The only thing I can think of, as I said, is keeping kosher right now. And, you know, the lack of a minion and probably not having enough Jews at this point. I don't know how many Jews are on the main campus. I suspect a, a, a small sprinkling. Right. It's interesting you mentioned Minion because that was one of my next questions. I have two more, if you don't mind. Um, yeah, of course. In your interview with Tucker, you expressed great admiration for rural America. But you said you basically couldn't live there. You had to live in one of the major American cities. And Tucker said, why? Because you need to have a Minion. And you started laughing. Yeah. And he said, no, I'm serious. How in the world did Tucker Carlson know what a Minion is? Oh, come on. I mean, Tucker lived in Manhattan and in Washington, D.C. for many, many years. And... He loves the outdoors, but he knows cosmopolitan American life, which is heavily Jewish. And also, Tucker's a smart guy. You know, I, I don't know what impression people have of him from the television. He's not a big self-promoter, and he's not an arrogant know-it-all. And so he always kind of plays dumb and laughs and asks questions. But, you know, having met him a few times, I can tell you, he's a smart guy. And uh, yeah, of course he knows what a minion is in the same way that, I don't know, you know what a mufti is. And, you know, I, I know what it, nirvana is in, in Buddhism. So I think he's just an educated person who's known many Jews because he's lived in New York and D.C. No, I mean, obviously, I would assume he would know what kosher means and chutzpah. Minion is not the most common, you know, Jewish word that goes around. He, but... he lived in New York. I mean, he okay. lived in New York. You know, if you live in New York, you're basically Jewish, even if you're not. <laughs> right. Okay, so my last question is about Pat Buchanan, because also in that interview, you expressed great admiration for Pat Buchanan. I have found Buchanan to be very insightful, but he's also said things about Israel that strike me anyways as overly hostile for no obvious reason. Do you just ignore these particular statements? How do you deal with them? 
That's a great question. And, you know, I told Tucker that when I became interested in American intellectual life, I basically never looked into Buchanan because I had been told he was an anti-Semite, which is kind of a quick way to get you to, you know, like today, oh, this person's a racist, don't look into him. Right. Whereas I think at this point, we should all know that that's more than likely to be BS. So I got interested in Buchanan because I had to teach a class on conservatism and I had to do the paleoconservatives. Buchanan is probably, the, is not probably, is the leading one. As I was reading, I'm like, man, this guy's really sharp and, you know, talk about being spirited. And also, he's just been right about so many things. So why is he marginalized? So then I looked into the whole charge of anti-Semitism. And what I would basically tell you is, do I agree with everything that Pat Buchanan has said about Israel and the Jews? No. Has he really crossed a line, like gone into Holocaust denial or urged Iran to nuke Israel? No. Does he seem to be motivated by real malice? No. And so why do I need to agree with every last jot and tittle of what a prolific author writes for me to read him and learn from him? Okay, so, you know, I'm pro-Israel, he's not. Well, then I'll agree to disagree with him on that. There is a lot to learn from him about other issues. So I'm just, you know, I don't get offended easily. And I like to learn. And I love America, and I like to see people fighting intelligently and boldly on her behalf, and I think that Buchanan has done that. So, you know, I mean, there isn't a single thinker. For example, you mentioned Tocqueville. I love Tocqueville. I greatly admire him. Do I agree with everything he ever wrote? No. I mean, why is that a requirement for reading someone and learning from them? There obviously are clear lines, like I gave you an example, you know, being genocidal. That's not Pat Buchanan. So if I had to explain the positions he's taken, I'm speculating here. I guess he probably feels that you're never allowed to say anything negative about Jews or Israel in America. I mean, now you can from the left. Everyone freaks out. And you kind of feel the boot on your neck. Same thing with blacks or with gays or with women. There are all these pieties. And he probably lashed out because if you're a spirited person, you don't like to be told what to say. And maybe he said things, you know, he didn't phrase them in the most artful way. Look, I don't know. I'm not trying to make excuses for them. But I think we all feel this boot that when it comes to protected identity groups, you can only praise them. And sometimes it might be perfectly legitimate to raise some questions or criticism. And that doesn't make you a Holocaust denier or a supporter of the Third Reich. But I I think he's absolutely worth reading and has proven to be immensely prescient. You know, when I had to teach this class on conservatism, you just read what they were writing in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. And oddly enough for me, I'll tell you, when I finished teaching that class, the two that stood out were Pat Buchanan and Irving Kristol, which is an odd pairing, right? Because Irving Kristol is the father of the neocons. Pat Buchanan is the father of the paleocons, and they hate each other. I mean, paleos and neocons are each other's thoughts, but... I just find that in the conservative tradition in America in the 20th century, I found them to be the deepest, most thoughtful, who had said more things in the past that I thought helped me make sense of today. So it just kind of goes to show you how you can be eclectic in your reading. Uh, I'm not saying I'm going to harmonize. I'm not sure I would call myself a paleo-neocon. 
but there's always something to learn. So yeah, I, I admire Buchanan and I think there's a lot to learn from him. Okay. Thank you so very much for your time. I really appreciate it. The pleasure was all mine. Thank you, Elliot. Thank you. All right. That does it for us. If you like this podcast, please consider subscribing to it and giving it a good rating and a nice review if you're so inclined. Thank you for joining us today or this evening and stay tuned for next week's episode.